You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast brought to you by our good friends at MyBookie. I am your host, Tyler, and today I am back to answer all of your questions in the lead-up to the National Championship game early next week, and we've got a nice mix of questions this week, guys. We still do have a number of them that were sent in looking back to the Peach Bowl from Saturday. We gave you our instant reactions. Curse and I did Sunday afternoon, but this gives me a chance to go back and dive a little bit deeper on some of the things that we either didn't get to at all or maybe just kind of briefly touched on but didn't really dive full headfirst into, so it gives us a chance to kind of go back and do some of that. But we aren't only looking backwards today as we also have some great questions about the matchup with TCU in Monday's National Championship game in SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California. And you know what, guys? I really want to get to as many of these questions as I possibly can today. So let's go ahead and dive right into it off the bat. And let's open with just a couple of fun questions. We'll get to the X's and O's questions, all the schematic stuff here shortly. But got two questions off the top here I think are kind of fun. And the first one is a question from Ben. I appreciate it, man. Um, Ben asks, how many swings of emotion did you endure over the course of the Peach Bowl? Honestly, Ben, too many to count. What I can tell you is that I did die and come back to life at least a couple of different times. But really, in all seriousness, it, it was a roller coaster, man. Just like for all you guys, it was an absolute roller coaster for me sitting there inside Mercedes Benz Stadium and kind of just going back and thinking about it from from the opening snap through the end of the game. You know, I was fine in the first quarter. I know that they jumped out that quick seven nothing lead, but like that happens from time to time. Like I wasn't gonna let that freak me out. I knew coming to that game that Ohio State was gonna score. I just felt like we were gonna score more, and we did barely, but we did. But for, for the most part, by and large, I was fine in the first quarter. I will say, as soon as Pod missed that first field goal, I believe that was in the first quarter, right? Uh, as soon as he missed that first field goal, like from that point on, the rest of the game, I kept saying over and over again that that was going to cost us the game to the point that my wife, like, she was just like rolling her eyes, as I said it, for about the 38th time, you know, at, at some random point in the fourth quarter. So that one certainly hurt. But I, again, like, it was early. I felt like we were going to be able to, to score some points and come back and, and win this football game. 
when they went up 21-7 after the Stetson interception, so it was 14-7, he comes back, and we, I think that wheel route to Kenny was going to be there if he had a beat longer, if he waited a beat longer, I think he was feeling the pressure there and let it go just a little too early. It was a terrible decision, terrible throw, not making any excuses for Stetson. There's a bad decision. But uh, that interception, and then they score right after the next drive, go 21-7. Well, that's where I, I, I wasn't freaking out yet. But that's where I really started to take some deep breaths. Like, I'm sitting there in the TV timeouts going, all right, okay, okay. And, like, I could feel it coming. I could feel it coming. I was trying to fight it off, but I could feel it coming. This is And this is where, like, old Tyler, like, old Georgia Syndrome Tyler would have, like, already been, like, on the floor just, like, in a ball curled up just crying his eyes out. Like, that's where I would have been. But I, I have made a very concerted effort over the past couple of years to – grow and develop and change that mindset that really characterized my entire Georgia fanhood my entire life up until the Kirby Smart tenure I guess up until like what the last five years even go back to 2017 and there's been various different times where I felt like I was in complete remission of old Georgia syndrome but like invariably it always comes back and I have a relapse and uh, I was teetering there when we went down 21-7 I was fighting it and I didn't quite have that relapse yet but I was fighting it now one thing that certainly helped me was Kendall Milton coming right back and scoring on our next drive which brought us within a touchdown make it 21-14 so I'm like, okay all right we're fine we're fine we're good we're good we're good and then the drive which I thought was right before half to go up 24-21 that was huge for me. That, that, I started to feel really confident there. That entire drive, I was sitting there just kind of talking to myself, whispering to myself, middle eight, middle eight, middle eight, control the middle eight, dominate the middle eight. And by middle eight, if you aren't familiar with that, guys, what I mean by that is like the last four minutes of the first half, the first four minutes of the second half. Even though the first half, we were down for most of that half, I felt if we could control the middle eight, win the, the last four of the first half, which it seemed like we were going to do, and then come out swinging, getting the ball in the in the second half, control that middle late that we could take control of the game. And I thought we had done that. But then when they came roaring back down the field right before half and scored that touchdown to take the 28-24 lead into half, that took a lot of the air out of me going into half. And I, and I spent the entire halftime period just pacing aimlessly in the concourses of Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Like I just, I went to the bathroom real fast and then I was just pacing back and forth, back and forth. People looking at me like I was insane. And I, I, I am insane, so I, I don't have any defense for that. And then um, getting the second half and obviously the third quarter was not good for us. It did not go our way at all and things were looking pretty bleak there. And when Pod missed that second field goal in the third quarter, which was, I guess, the only field goal he missed in the third quarter, but the second field goal he missed of the game. And that was a long field goal. It was a tough, a tough attempt there. But when he missed that field goal and then they followed it up with a field goal of their own and were down 14 going into the fourth quarter, at that point, I was um, I, I was shaking during TV timeout. It's like yeah, I'm doing the whole like hunched over in my seat, and you know legs are shaking, tapping my feet, doing that kind of thing. And my my wife does the whole thing when she looks at me because when I do that and. She, she thinks that I'm making the entire row shake and I probably am. And so she's like, stop doing that. You, like, you're being rude to everyone else around you. But sometimes I can't help it. So then I have to like, get up and start pacing around because I just can't sit still because I'm on edge too much. And that's where I was going into the fourth quarter. I, I at, at that point, I, I got up between every TV timeout and just went down into the concourses. Fortunately, I had an aisle seat so I could, I could do that pretty quickly. It was just pacing again until I I was watching it on my on my watch to see how because I know how long the TV timeout is going to be and I make it right back up before 
the TV TV timeout was over, but I was uh yeah I was kind of a mess. And then when they called Brock out one yard short on that fourth and six, I thought it was all over. Like I was just ejected. Like my heart just dropped. I kind of felt to some degree it wasn't quite as stark as I felt like in the twenty was it twenty twelve SEC championship game back in the old Georgia Dome because that was like the game was over. Like we guess technically we still had a chance, but I felt like the game was over. Just like when when Conley came down short. Um, in that 2012 SEC Championship game against Alabama, and I just kind of fell to the floor and collapsed. I kind of felt like doing that when Brock was called short because I thought the game was over there. Uh, but fortunately, they reviewed it, and I, what I honestly what I did, guys, is on plays like that, I pulled up my phone, I got YouTube TV, and so I pulled up and kind of looked at the replay there because they weren't showing the replay inside Mercedes-Benz Stadium. So I pulled that up and I and I looked at, it, and I was like, I, I'm. Almost a thousand percent sure he's not out of bounds. And I, I turned to my wife and was like, he's not out of bounds, right? Tell me I'm not crazy. He's not out of bounds, right? She's like, no, he looks like he's still in. And uh, so I was like, I think they're going to overturn this. And so like, I was I, I was kind of like freaking out when I, when they first called him out of bounds. And then I watched the replay. I was like, I think I think he's in. I think he's in. So I was kind of hopeful there. And they called him in. I was like, hell yes. And then Stetson does the inexplicable little lateral pass to McConkie when that wasn't even an option in the play. And that... Took us out of um, scoring a touchdown there, which that was frustrating. Wanted seven there, but hey, we we got three. We had to have those points. So I felt okay. Still a, a nervous wreck, but felt okay there. And then Arian, when he caught that touchdown, I barely caught my breath. Because remember, that was right after the, the, the fake punt that I thought at first they were going to get. And I would... Again, that was one of the moments where I died, right? And then we say, oh, Kirby called a timeout. Great, awesome. And then right after that, I barely caught my breath. Aaron gets a touchdown. Boom. So I'm feeling it at that point. I'm like, all right, this is what I'm talking about. I knew it fourth quarter. This is where our depth, our depth takes over. This is where our championship pedigree takes over. These are things I talked about coming to the game. This is what I felt like was going to happen. It's like, okay, let's go. It's all going to happen here. And then once again, as soon as that happens, I thought it was all over. Once again, I died again. They get the ball inside our 20-yard line, second and five, I think on our 18, if I, if I remember correctly. And then Pop comes up with one of the most underrated plays of that game that I don't really hear anyone else talking about. But to me, that was a massive play because I think like if they score a touchdown on that drive, it's over. Like Holding a field goal was something that we had to do. And then Pop's sack there made that possible. So that was huge. I, I was I've, I'm still nervous, still very nervous, but that was huge. I was like, okay, we're still in this. We're still in this. We still got this. We still got this. And then we score, right? Um, we score. We go down the field. Stetson has a hell of a drive, you know, does his fourth quarter miraculous thing, and uh, we score. But unlike most of the stadium, I was excited. I cheered, obviously, but I wasn't losing my mind yet like everyone else. I think I even tweeted it out because immediately as soon as we scored, I turned to my wife and just kept repeating, too much time, too much time, too much time, too much time, too much time. I mean, I was even upset. I was very upset while we were trying to score on that drive. I think actually that play, the touchdown play, I think Stetson snapped the ball with 16 seconds on the clock. And I'm like, what are we doing? Why are we snapping the ball with 16 seconds on the play clock? We need to take this down as much as we possibly can. My thought process there was, we're not getting another possession. It's now or never. So why do we want to score and give them any time at all? So at the, where we were on the field and the amount of time that was left, we needed to take that that play clock down to like one or two seconds on every snap, but we didn't. I was frustrated about that. So that's where I was. I was excited. I was like, okay, okay. But like, I knew that we were not out of the woods. I had seen what happened. We all saw what happened right before the half. I'm like, I mean, they just got plenty of time, guys. I mean, we haven't really, we haven't really covered them all, covered them well all game long. CJ Stroud is having the game of his life. Like, what are we, what are we, what are we doing? Like, like this game is not over. Everyone's losing their mind. They're hugging and kissing each other. People making out in the stands. I'm like, what are y'all doing, man? Like, this game is not over. 
over. And I know that's a problem. I, I know that I got to do better. I gotta, I've got to be better and just like live in the moment. But I was freaking out, man. I was freaking out. And sure enough, what do they do? They march right down the field. We're sitting there. We're playing that. The first completion they had sitting there playing a prevent defense. I don't understand. I don't understand why teams do this. I do not understand. I don't know what we're, I know what, I know the, the thought process. We don't want to get burned vertically down the field. I understand that, but at least try to defend them because when you sit there and you're just giving them 20 yard completions, like, what are you doing? Like you are giving them the yards they need to get into field goal range when they only need a field goal to beat you. So I was freaking out, man. And, um, it really wasn't until the, the missed field goal there right at the end that I, exhaled is like oh my god oh my god and that was an ecstatic feeling it was euphoric it was incredible so yeah how many swings of emotion um I hope that kind of explains where I was during the game emotionally it was uh it was a mess I was a mess I am a mess I'm all over the place but um that's just kind of how I roll I'm a I'm a neurotic individual especially when it comes to Georgia football all right next I've got a question from Jack and Jack asks which was a better game from start to finish, the Peach Bowl or the Rose Bowl? And Curtis and I touched on this a little bit on our instant reaction episode, and we disagreed a little bit here. Curtis, I don't want to call him a prisoner of the moment, but maybe kind of here, uh, went with the Peach Bowl. It is hard to argue because, oh, God, it was an incredible game, right? Like, you know, I just said I didn't exhale, like, finally, like, start to breathe again until that, that final kick sailed wide left. But for me... It's still the Rose Bowl. It's still the Rose Bowl. A couple of reasons there. Uh, We were never down more than two touchdowns in the Peach Bowl against Ohio State. Now, two touchdowns in the fourth quarter is quite a monumental hurdle to overcome. I'm not sure how many of you realize this, but entering Saturday's game, entering entering the Peach Bowl, Ohio State was 164 and one as a program when leading by at least 14 points in the fourth quarter. Our comeback victory on Saturday made them 164 and two. And then on top of that, teams trailing by 14 or more points in the fourth quarter in casual playoff games were one in 19 coming into Saturday's game. We made that two and 19. So 14 points was still a Herculean effort if you look at those numbers, but we were never down more than 14 points. Against Oklahoma in the Rose Bowl, we were facing a 17-point deficit going into the half. Like we were about to be, we were down 17. They had scored with what, just a couple of seconds left before the half, and it was about to be a 17-point deficit. Fortunately for us, they try the squib kick, and Tay Crowder jumps on it, sets up a, a Rodrigo Blankenship epic field goal attempt, and he nails it. We're down 14. Still down 14, but two scores is a lot better psychologically going to the locker room, at least in terms of like thinking you can overcome that than three scores, right? But we were on our heels that entire first half. We were on our heels at times in the first half against Ohio State, but again, like we took the lead right before half and then, and then they came back and they and they retook the lead go up 28-24 but it, it wasn't that kind of deficit going into half I'm going to the fourth quarter yes but not at halftime again I, I, we just we were struggling to stay uh, to keep our head above water in the first half against Oklahoma and only one of those two games did go to overtime and I, I know the Ohio State game we, we won by one point so it was a very narrow margin as narrow margin as you could get but only one of them the Rose Bowl went to overtime and maybe I'm still partial to the Rose Bowl and I admitted this on the recap episode like that was a a, a, no, a novelty for me right like I hadn't experienced 
a game with stakes like that. That was that was our first college football playoff game. Like we, uh, the closest thing I had experienced prior to that as a Georgia fan was the 2012 SEC championship game, which which was essentially a play-in to face Notre Dame in the BCS national championship game. But that was our first college football playoff game, and for it to play out like that in epic fashion, when we had still not won a national championship in my lifetime. That one will always hold a special place in my heart. So maybe I'm I'm biased. I mean, I'll own that. But for me, I still say the Rose Bowl was a better game. All right, well, let's keep this thing rolling and let's get more into the X's and O's, more into the team stuff here. And Jonah has a good question for us to dive into. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Um, what Jonah asks is, what is your bigger injury concern heading into the national championship, Darnell Washington or the outside linebacker edge position? Good question. I'm concerned about all of it. Um, I'm, I'm still worried about Lad McConkey not being 100% because like Lad's been a baller for us all year, and it's great to have AD Mitchell back. But like Lad's a weapon for us too, so I'm I'm concerned about all of it. But to me, if you're asking about Darnell versus outside linebacker, it's Darnell by a mile for me. Uh, we haven't had elite edge play since the Florida game, you know, when Nolan Smith went out with with the pec injury, and uh, we've managed just fine. Like you guys know that I've been very concerned about that going back to that Florida game, but we've managed just fine. We still won all these games and still beating some really good teams. And what you'll see here is that like Robert Beal doesn't seem like he's maybe hundred percent himself, but he'll play a lot more snaps in this game. Uh, we'll see what happens with Chaz. What I'm hearing is that he might be able to go give us a couple of snaps here and there. I don't know. I, I really don't know. And we're not really going to know and probably until, until Monday when that rolls around, but Beal is going to have to play a lot more snaps. Um, it hurts us from a depth perspective. Marvin Jones Jr. Who did come in and play some important snaps for us in the second half of the Peach Bowl is going to have a bigger role in this game. Um, and he's like, he's not going to play as much as Chaz played. I don't think, I don't think we're just going to replace him or replace Chaz with, with Marvin, like, you know, playing the same number snaps. I think Bill is going to take more of those snaps and Marvin is going to have to, you know, come in and spell him occasionally. But I'm not, I, I, I'm not unworried about that position. We actually have another question about that later on, which I'll get into more, but I'm more worried, far more worried about Darnell um, because I think he is an underrated key to our offense. You know, that's one of the things I was trying to get across on the, on the instant reaction episode was that, you know, all these Ohio State fans sitting here just, you know, still blabbing all day long about, Marvin Harrison Jr. and the, the oh the cheap shot, which was not a cheap shot, which was a perfectly clean play, whatever, and talking about how that they would have won the game if he hadn't gotten knocked out with an illegal hit. Well, I mean, first off, again, wasn't illegal, and I do understand, I do agree that him going out was was a big play in that game. I think I had that rated as my second highest uh, or second most important play of the game. It was definitely a big play in the game. But my my big counter to that is. Well, we lost our tight end. I know people look at Brock Bowers, who's the Mackey Award winner, and say, well, Darnell is our number two tight end. Like, as a pass catcher, yes, but I think in many ways, Darnell is just as important to our offense as Brock Bowers is in terms of what he does. He does some things that Brock does not, like, Brock can do them, but just not the way that Darnell does. So my, my contention is that us losing Darnell Washington in the first half, you know, what was it that late in the first quarter, early second quarter, something like that? Losing him, we lost him, was almost just as impactful to our offense as Ohio State losing Marvin Harrison Jr. for for one quarter of play based off of what he does for our offense. I know he's not the pass-catching threat as much as Brock or Marvin Harrison Jr. is for Ohio State, 
but you don't have to be. That doesn't mean you aren't critical to what we do. And he absolutely is critical to what we do on offense. Our 12 personnel grouping with him on the field, that is what more than anything makes us a problem to deal with. Because defense, as I've said many, many times, they have to make a decision. Do you go with light personnel or do you go with heavy personnel to defend against the rungs? We have 12 personnel and one of those one of those tight ends is Darnell Washington. You better believe we can run the ball right down your damn throat. And so do you respond with heavy personnel to try to stop the rung? And if you do that, that, well, he still have leg enough. Bauer still have leg enough to hurt you in the passing game. I mean, our running backs, obviously, that can get involved in the passing game as well. So, what do you do there? It's one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of things for for defense. That's what we call classic conflict. And the defense just can't be right with the hybrid ability of Darnell and Brock there as tight ends. So. Just for, in general, it's very, very critical for us to have Darnell Washington. I think it takes an even more added importance in this game against TCU because of how their defense is structured. They have they play a three three five, which we'll talk more about on the preview episode uh, in a couple of days here at the end of the week. In that three three five, they have a pretty big nose tackle, who's about three hundred twenty pounds, but their defensive ends are two hundred seventy five and two hundred eighty pounds respectively. Darnell Washington is going to control the game on the edges if he's in this game, all right? And then the three linebackers on the field, they average between 230 to 245 pounds, okay? So Darnell Washington, with an undersized front seven, was going to be a key for our run game, being able to take hold in this game and hopefully be able to lead us to victory. That's going to be much more difficult without Darnell Washington out there in this game. And along those same lines, one of the issues that this 3-3-5 defensive scheme that TCU runs poses for opposing run games is that big lumbering offensive lineman trying to block all these athletes from depth. When I say depth, they're offline scrimmage. They have three linebackers offline scrimmage. You have five DBs offline scrimmage, and they all can get involved in the run game. Obviously, the offensive linemen are bigger and stronger than these guys, but the offensive linemen are not as athletic. It's harder for them to get out and block these guys in space, these kind of athletes in space. That's where Darnell is a major weapon for us if he can play in this game. Because yes, he functions as an offensive lineman with his blocking ability, but he has tight end athleticism. It's not as much of an issue for him to get out in space. He's used to playing out in space and blocking out in space on all those screens, right? That's not as much of a problem for him. We need Darnell in this game. We absolutely do. Our screen game. Like, why do we not why do we not run as much of our screen game in the second half of that game against Ohio State in the Peach Bowl? Well, a big part of that is because Darnell Washington wasn't in the game. And he's a big part of what we do in the screen game. Delp is going to be an awesome player. I love Oscar Delp. I'm extremely excited about Oscar Delp. I think he filled in admirably when he came in for, for Darnell. But the reality is he just simply does not pose at this stage in his career. And he never will because he's not that kind of body. He does not pose the same issues for defenses that Darnell does. Now, he can pose different kinds of issues as a pass catcher. He's more athletic than Darnell, but in terms of the run game and as a blocker, he does not pose the same issues for defenses that Darnell does. Now, could that possibly work to our advantage? Can we do some different things with Delp, who, again, is a better athlete, I think a better overall pass catcher than Darnell is? Uh, maybe, maybe we can we can look at it that way and be you know glass half full. I don't know, but all I know is not having Darnell in this game. If he does not play, man, that's uh, that is a blow. That is a blow for us because he is going. Like, he's always a key for our offense, but especially against the, a defense that plays the way that TCU does. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, guys, let's keep this train rolling. And uh, next question is from Paul. Let's stick on the tight end theme here, the 12 personnel themes. Another insightful question from Paul who always brings heat. Always appreciate it, man. Um, Paul asks, we've run so much 12 personnel this season. If Darnell is not able to go in the natty, do you think we keep things mostly the same as they've been offensively, just with Delp replacing Darnell, or do you think we use more 11 personnel, especially now that A.D. Mitchell is healthy? Paul, I think this is maybe the question of the week. I am, I have been deep in thought about this very thing, and I don't know the answer. I don't, I don't think, we, none of us know the answer. We will not know the answer until Monday night, but what the coaches are going to have to do here when they're sitting there in the meeting room game planning how we're going to attack TCU is they're going to have to revisit the calculus that this offense has been based on. You know, all year the calculus has been Darnell brings more value than a third wide receiver. Our second tight end brings more value than a third wide receiver, being that whether that's Kiaris, Dom, Arian, whoever it might be as a third wide receiver. The question that we have to answer when we revisit that calculus is do we feel the same about Oscar Delp at this point in his career? Do we feel that Oscar Delp can come close, anywhere close to doing the things that Darnell did for us in the run game and the screen game? If the answer is yes, because the coaches have seen him, guys. Now, we've only seen Oscar Delp at times on the field. Like We've seen very limited snaps from Oscar Delp. The coaches see him in practice every day, every week, right? They know, but they're gonna have to answer that question. Can he do those things? Can he function even close to the way that Darnell functioned for us in the run game and the screen game? If the answer is yes, then we're gonna, we'll probably just plug in Delt for Darnell and, and do pretty much the same thing that we have done. If the answer is no, then I think you have to change some things up and go with more 11 personnel. In no way do I think that we are going to completely abandon 12 personnel no matter what. That's not going to happen. It's too big of a part of what we do offensively. But I, I could feasibly see a scenario where we... Don't run as much 12 personnel in this game as we do normally without Darnell in the game, which again, I think that that is a shame if it has to come to that because Darnell, like running 12 personnel against this defense and the way they scheme things up, I think that is, um, I think that is something that could really cause them a lot of issues, especially when that 12 personnel, those two tight ends are Darnell Washington and Brock Bauer. So I don't know the answer, Paul. I really don't. Uh, 
it's hard for me even to say what I would do here. It's again, I have just not seen that much of Oscar Dub. I will say I did like what I saw from Oscar in the Peach Bowl. I thought he did a really good job coming in there. He was a very willing physical blocker. Did he move guys the way that Darnell does? No. And absolutely not. Like, not even close. Because who does? Like, who does? It's Darnell Washington we're talking about here. I mean, he's a glorified left tackle that moves like a tight end. It's crazy. But that's a small sample size. And I think you also have to factor in Lad McConkie here, too. Like, what is Lad McConkie saw? Because what we saw from Arian Smith and how he kind of exploded onto the scene, what we've all been waiting for, at least what I've been waiting for for a long time for Arian. I know it was only three catches, but man, two of them were just absolute massive plays for us. With what we saw from him, if Lad can be close to 100% and you got AD, back to 100%, at least it looks like he's 100%, and then you've got Ladd and now Arian. Like if, if those are the three receivers you're talking about put on the field with 11 personnel, I would I would strongly consider putting the, putting that personnel group on the field a lot more than I would 12 personnel with the two Titans being Brock and Oscar Dub. if you're asking me based off what I saw on Saturday. But again, I, I don't have as much information to work with as the coaches do, so we're going to have to trust them and see what happens on Monday. All right, next I've got a question from Jamie. Uh, so, I told you guys earlier that when you're looking at the injuries, potentially Darnell and maybe Chaz Chambers, the outside linebacker position, I was more worried about the injury to Darnell. I stand by that. But Jamie does have a question about the outside linebacker situation. He says that he is very worried about the outside linebacker situation going to the national championship game. What are your thoughts? I don't want to give the impression that I am not worried about outside linebacker. In fact, if you, again, if you've listened to this show all season long, going back to October following the Florida game, I have talked every single week, I think every single week without fail, about my significant concerns about the outside linebacker position in the absence of Nolan Smith. We just don't have difference makers there. We have guys that are solid, that can do a good job, that play hard, that play smart. Um, Chaz Chambliss has gotten better. He's improved his awareness. But, I mean, like, like losing a guy like Nolan Smith, a potential first-round draft pick, or at least, I mean, a first or second-round draft pick, depending on where he, where he ends up and how things work out for him in the combine and how he heals up. Like it's been a it's been a major concern for me for a while. So I am worried. Okay, I don't want anyone to think that all of a sudden now Tyler's not worried about outside outside linebacker. I still am. Um, I'm probably even more so concerned now because without Chaz, um, who you know, he's he's had to he's had to learn on the fly and grow on the fly. And he's done a really good job improving each and every week. But without him, we have Marvin Jones Jr. now having to step in. And like I I do believe of all the outside linebackers currently on our roster, his, he has the highest ceiling of the bunch. But he is as green as you can get at this point in his freshman season. And now he's going to have to face an offense that uses a good amount of misdirection, especially in the run game, and will gash you on the quarterback zone read if you don't play discipline. That's a lot to ask. It's certainly very concerning for me. Again, I go back to what I said earlier. I think Robert Beal, who's not a dynamic edge player, he's not a dynamic edge rusher, but he's a solid guy. He's played a ton of football for us. He plays discipline. He plays hard. He needs to play a lot of snaps in this game. Now, we're going to have to rotate. Like you, you can't just keep him out there every single snap. Marvin Jones Jr. is going to have to play, and he's going to have to be extraordinarily disciplined and play with a lot of physicality when he goes out there. I hope that we can get something out of Chaz. I don't know. I'm hopeful. I just don't know at this point. We we'll have to see. Again, it's one of those things we're probably going to have to wait until Monday to really find out. And uh, one more question here about the outside linebacker. Speaking of Chaz Chambliss, Trey uh, asked, what is your opinion on Chaz Chambliss's evolution this season? And this is a good question, Trey. I have been, um, admittedly, very hard on Chaz Chambliss this season, particularly once Nolan Smith went down. Because, you know, Chaz, the first half of the year, 
I believe it was a hamstring, right, if I remember correctly, but he wasn't even really dressing out. So he wasn't really practicing. The development was was, was certainly set back with, with that injury, not being able to practice, not being able to get those reps. And he was certainly, like I said, learning on the fly. Like he he was he was out there playing as hard as he possibly could. And that's the thing I love about Chaz. He's always played really hard. He's always played with a lot of physicality when he's out there. The major problem for him was just lack of experience and lack of awareness. You know, I mean, like it, it, there were times out there like he would attack the the block, like he would close on the block or like try to blow the blocker up, like the pulling guard, whoever it is. Maybe it's a, a tight end running a split zone. We call that closing when you kind of blow them up. And he did that very willingly. He played with a lot of physicality, but then the running back would run right past him. And he's just like turning around in circles like he had no idea what's going on. And that's, and I'm not trying to like rip Chaz here. It's like he's, he's, he's young guys. Like he's, this is, he's really playing like significant snaps for the first time in his career. He's still learning. He's still growing. Like a guy with that limited amount of experience, you can't expect him to come out there and be like the most aware edge player in the history of the world. I will give him credit here though. He has improved in that regard with each and every game. And that's what you want. That's what you can ask from. You can't expect a guy to be perfect right away. But what you expect from them is to continue to improve and grow and clean up the mistakes and, and just become a better player overall. And he's done that. I think things have started to click for him a little bit. I think he, in the SEC Championship game, had a sack, had a big play there in that game. I thought he was playing well early in, in the Peach Bowl as well. So I, I think Chaz has come a long way. Do I think Chaz will ever become an elite edge rusher for us? Um, I can't sit here and say that I'm confident that will happen, but I think Chaz will be very much like Robert Beal for us, a guy that is a very valuable, solid player out there for us that that can play snaps, who can trust go out there and do what he's supposed to do and play with great physicality and play the Georgia way. He's also just a really hard worker and a guy that takes coaching really well. And those kind of guys are invaluable in your locker room. You want those kind of guys on your team. So I, I'm very excited about what Chaz has done in terms of growing and developing over the past month and a half or so. But I still, just being honest, I don't, I don't see him as... Uh, an elite edge rusher. Like, I don't think he'll be that at any point in his career. He's not that right now, and he'll get better and better. I just don't know if he'll ever be that kind of player for us. All right, next up, we've got a question from Scott. And Scott says that he thought we ran the ball well when we tried to against Ohio State. Why did we not stick with it more when Stetson was struggling? I agree with you, Scott. I, I certainly also felt like we ran the ball well when we tried to. Um, here's a crazy number, and I wanted—I had this in my notes to mention on our instant reaction episode, but we were kind of running out of time. Curtis had to get out and um, and had some things he had to take care of, so we had to kind of cut that a little bit short there. But it was on my on my list of things to talk about. I didn't get a chance to, so now it's the perfect time to do it. Our top three running backs: so Kenny McIntosh, Kendall Milton, Dejan Edwards. They only combined for 16 total carries in that game. That is not very Georgia-like. That's not what we've seen the back half of this season. But here's what was encouraging. Even though we only gave them 16 combined carries total in the game, on those 16 carries, they combined for 154 yards rushing, which came out to 9.6 yards per rush. And we had a number of different explosive plays from all three of the guys. Dajan had a couple big runs. Uh, we obviously had the 50-plus yarder from Kenny McIntosh where the snipers came out, man, and just got him. And then you had the, what was it, 11, ended up being an 11-yard touchdown run by Kendall Milton there. So they, they all had some big explosive plays for us. And I thought in the first half, when we ran it, we ran the ball well. And I also say to open the third quarter, we did try to run the ball in the third quarter. Like, we did. I mean, I went back and charted it when I saw this question. In the first drive of the third quarter, we got the ball to open the open the half. We ran the ball. Yeah, we only ran the ball one out of three plays, but it was three and out on that first drive. But come back drive two, we ran the ball three out of four plays, and we 
where we ran it three straight times to open that drive. And then on drive three, we this is the, the possession where we got the ball on the Ohio State 32 after Kiaris' nice punt return. Well, we ran the ball two out of three times on that drive, which is the one we ended up missing. That was a 52-yard field goal there. So in the third quarter, we did try to come out and run the football. We did not have as much success in the third quarter running the ball as we did in the first half. And I think once we got in the fourth quarter, again, we went down, we went into the fourth quarter down 14, right? Two touchdowns. And so I think at that point, maybe there was a feeling among our offensive staff and Kirby as well that Time was just too precious to waste in the fourth quarter. We didn't have time to sit there and run the ball, run the ball, run the ball because we were having trouble stopping them. We knew we had to put up points. We didn't know how many points we had to put up, and you don't want to limit possessions in that scenario. So I th- think we kind of felt like we had to score fast and get as many possessions as we could. And so I think that's why, uh, you know, in the fourth quarter, we only ran the ball one time in the fourth quarter. So I think that skewed the overall numbers. If you think about Georgia throughout the entire season and what we've done, the fourth quarter has basically just been us turning around and hand the ball off, whether we're icing games or or we're just trying to run the clock out because we're, we're killing teams, like whatever it is. But this was a different kind of game for us. And one of the things I've said about us all year long that's been very encouraging for me is that we've been able, we've shown that we can win a game playing whatever type of game you want us to play. Like whatever you're trying to make us do, we can beat you doing that. We don't just have like a fastball. Like we have a changeup, we have a curveball, we got a slider, we got some junk we can throw and we can still beat you. And that's what we saw in this game. Like we, we, we only ran the ball one time. So I think it kind of skewed things in the fourth quarter. But I, I agree with you, Scott. I thought that when we did run it, especially in the first half, we had a lot of success doing so. I think just circumstances in the fourth quarter, late in the second half of that game kind of conspired to keep us from running the ball as much as we would normally do in those situations. And our next question comes from Joey. I don't know if we've gotten a question from Joey before. So uh, welcome to the show, man. Appreciate it. Don't be a stranger. Uh, Joey says or asks, what coach decides the running back for each play? I'm just curious about the rotations with Milton doing so well and then Edwards is suddenly put into the game. Does Todd Munkin decide those things? Uh, It's a very, very insightful question. It's a very good question, Joey. Um, The the reality is it's a collaborative effort and a lot of those decisions are made during the week leading into the game when you're putting together your game plan. The rotation is usually set before you come into the game. And I'm not saying that we don't deviate from it at times. Like sometimes like we'll go with a hot hand if one guy is just rolling. But I mean, think about the back half of the season, once we got Kendall Milton back healthy, right? Think about what the, what we've seen pretty much every single game. Kenny McIntosh starts the game. He gets the first series, right? Dejan Edwards comes in the second series. Then you usually see Kendall Milton coming in the third series. And then we kind of take it from there. But for the most part, it's kind of like, okay, you get a series, you get a series, you get a series, you get a series. And sometimes, like if somebody's got a hot hand, especially if the game's getting tight, then we'll roll with this guy. But there are also absolutely plays in the game where we know, okay, it might be this guy's series to like to open the series, but we know we want to use this specific player with this specific play in this specific moment. So for example, the screen pass that we ran to Kenny McIntosh to score our first touchdown to tie the game at seven on Saturday against Ohio State, or maybe that wheel route to Kenny where Stetson threw the interception, there are certain plays where you know, okay, like we have we have this one running back who runs this play better than the other guy. So let's make sure when we want to run this play that we have that guy in the game. And there's also like your situational football where it's not just like a specific play. Like in the red zone, for instance, Dejan Edwards has been our red zone guy for the most part this season. We've, we've used Kindle there like at times, but most of the time when we get in the red zone, especially when we get inside like the 5-10 yard line, Really, after the Missouri game, I think it was when we kind of figured this out because Dejan was big force in the red zone of the Missouri game, 
we realized, okay, Dejan is the guy that makes people miss in the hole better than anybody that we have on our roster at that position. And he's the guy that breaks tackles better than anybody that way. He might be smaller than the other guys, but he's the one that's breaking the tackles and making guys miss. And sometimes you're in the red zone when all those bodies are there, that's what you got to do. You need a guy that can do that. So we like to bring him in that situ- in that situation uh, because he's just shown that he, he's a very adept red zone runner. So situationally, it also that, that also factors into it, but it's, it's not just one guy. It's not just Del McGee sitting there saying, all right, now I'm going to put you in. Now I'm going to put you in. Now I'm going to put you in. It's usually something they have game planned all week long. And you can change it up based on like what plays you want to, you want to run when and, and what the situations might ultimately end up being at any given point in the game. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, we've talked enough about the Peach Bowl. Now let's turn the page and look forward to the national championship game against TCU. Got a couple of really good questions looking ahead to that game. The first one is from Ali, another first time, I don't want to say first time listener, but first time asker of question, if that even makes sense, if that's even a thing. But regardless, thank you, Ali. I appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to the show. And Ali asked, what are your thoughts on the best defensive scheme against TCU since they can presumably run and pass well and Ali you are presuming correct they do they run the ball and they throw the ball well they are a better rushing team than they are a passing team but they can do both well and they can do both explosively which does make them dangerous and speaking of explosiveness TCU is the most explosive offense in the country they are right there with Tennessee yes they played one more game than Tennessee so maybe that helps them but they have more plays of 50 or more yards on the season than any other team in the country. Guys, they got 21, 21 plays of 50 or more yards. That's more than double what we have on the season. Heck, take it a step further. They got 48 plays of 40 or more yards on the season. This is an explosive offense. So we got to start there. When you're trying to come up with your game plan to defend TCU's offense, you have to make sure, first and foremost, that you do not give up explosive plays. I have serious doubts about whether TCU can consistently grind out enough long drives to go all the way down the field, length of the field, to score enough to beat us in this game. Especially when you factor in the fact that we are number one in the country in red zone touchdown percentage allowed defensively, 
We have to make them earn it. We cannot give up those explosive plays, which takes our red zone defense out of the equation. So how do you do that? How do you limit their explosiveness? Well, easier said than done. I think the first thing structurally from a coverage standpoint, I don't think that we can get caught in a lot of single high looks. Quentin Johnson is one of the best receivers in the country. He might be the first receiver taken in the NFL draft. He's a different kind of receiver. They're like Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Ibuka. He's a taller, longer receiver who does more in terms of, he does a lot after the catch actually, um, but he's a big tall guy that can go up in high point footballs. He's just, a, he's a, a physical matchup problem. Um, he's not as crisp of a route runner, I guess I would say as Harrison and Ibuka um, like are, but he's still a very good route runner, he should, but he's an explosive athlete out there, an explosive receiver for them. And with a guy like that, you just can't get caught in a lot of single high looks and give them man coverage out there where there's not safety help. Okay. The other thing is, we also have to get after Duggan. They're only 69th in standard down sack rate. I don't love bringing a lot of bodies in this game again because if you bring a lot of bodies, you're bringing five or six guys on the blitz, then you can't really play those two high safety looks that I think we need to be playing. So I am more in favor of more simulated pressure looks in this game, which we do a very good job of. Um, but the issue with Max Duggan at quarterback is if you do bring pressure and he breaks contain, he is a problem. He is an athlete back there and he can, he can make explosive plays with his legs as well. So you have to spy, you have to mirror him. I think you have to mush rush him where you have to kind of keep him contained in the pocket and do not let him escape. He can make plays when he escapes the pocket. So I think all of those things are really important. And you're right, they do run the ball. Well, they're top 20 nationally in rushing offense. They're averaging a little bit over 200 yards a game. But we have to take our chances trying to stop their run game with even numbers in the box. We cannot get into the situation where we're rolling safety down the box. We have not really had to do that all season long. And we can't start now. Because again, I think it's critical in this game that we provide safety help over the top to take away their explosiveness in the passing game. Now, they don't just create explosive plays by throwing the ball vertically down the field. They will push the ball vertically down the field. They also have a really, really dangerous screen game where they get guys out blocking in front of, of the receiver who catches the ball like right behind the line of scrimmage, and they are dangerous with the ball in their hands. Quentin Johnson, even though he's tall and long, he's a long strider, he's not like super quick, but he gets out in space and he starts running, he gets ahead of steam, that guy is going to break away. Darius Davis is another guy who's just maybe the most dangerous return man in the country. He's a little small dude and he, he doesn't catch the ball a ton, but when they use him in the screen game and he gets some space, you're not going to catch the guy. So they have different ways that they create explosive plays and offense. They do it in the run game as well. But I do want to keep as many bodies back there defending against the pass, trying to limit their explosive plays as I possibly can. So we've got to do what we do, play Georgia football, play Georgia defense, and stop the run with even numbers. If we can do that, I think we have a really, really, really good chance of, of limiting this offense and winning this football game. Okay, next up, we have a question from Andy. Actually, this is more of a statement from Andy that kind of turned into a little bit of a question. So, Andy, I hope you don't mind there. But Andy says that Max Duggan reminds him a lot of Bo Nix. Do you think we struggle with a quarterback like him as much as we did with C.J. Stroud? Short answer, Andy, no, I don't. I do not think that we will struggle with Max Duggan as much as we will see, as we did against C.J. Stroud. And this is no slight to Max Duggan. Max Duggan is a fantastic player. I mean, I've been rooting for this guy all year long, maybe for some selfish reasons, because I had some bets on them, but I also think he's an incredible story. As good of a story as Stetson Bennett is, Max Duggan's also a fantastic story. I have a lot of respect for him and how he stuck it out, even though he lost the starting job and didn't transfer in a day, but in this day and age of immediate gratification and people and players getting all up in their feelings and blaming other people. 
people. He just went to work and tried to be a good teammate and um, loves his university. So I have a lot of respect for Max Duggan. He's a very talented, very, very good quarterback. He's a big reason why, actually, because I, I, you know, coming this season, when I put some of those bets on them, I didn't know if he was going to win the job of, or if it was going to be Chandler Morris. But I, I always liked Max Duggan better last year, even though Chandler Morris started to get some more of the snaps late in the game. He kind of lost his job late in, late in the season to him. I thought that Gary Patterson made a mistake there. I've always been a big fan of Max Duggan. I think he's he's a gamer. He's just a tough SOB and a very good football player. But saying all that, Max Duggan, while a good passer, is not C.J. Stroud when it comes to throwing the football. I told you last week, and I think you saw it on full display on Saturday night in the Peach Bowl, C.J. Stroud, I, I believe, is the best pure passing quarterback that we have faced in the Kirby Smart era. And we faced a lot of really good passing quarterbacks. I think as a pure passer, C.J. Stroud is is the best that we have faced. Max Duggan is not that, okay? He is very much a threat, but he's a a different kind of threat. He's unlike Stroud. He's not that type of passer, but he is a much more dynamic runner. Thing is, even though Stroud did hurt us with his legs, I know what what I've already seen a lot of people do is say, oh, well, if CJ Stroud, who is not really a runner, if he was able to, to run on George the way that he did and hurt them with his legs the way that he did. Well, what is what is Max Duggan going to do? Okay, two very different things here, guys, okay? We were clearly not accounting for C.J. Stroud's legs in the Peach Bowl for very good reason. The guy had an absolute aversion to running the football all season long, like really his entire career. Like there'd be wide open lanes. He'd be like, nah, man, just not going to do it. In this game, clearly with a month to prepare, they told him, look, George's not going to be ready for you. They're not going to be game planning for you because on tape, you don't show that you run the football. In this game, that could be a, a difference maker, right? And so clearly he was more willing to run the football in that game. We were not prepared for it. We really didn't adjust well to it. That's one thing I thought I, we should have done a better job adjusting to, but it was almost too late. Um, but unlike the situation with C.J. Straub coming to the Peach Bowl on Saturday, we are absolutely going to be prepared for the threat that Max Duggan poses with his legs because that is a big part of what he does and a big part of what makes him unique and a special player at the quarterback position. And the reality is we have had far more success dealing with dual threat quarterbacks than we have with these quarterbacks like C.J. Stroud that are just dynamic passers that have dynamic weapons all over the field at the skill position. And I'm not saying TCU does not have dynamic weapons. Again, Quentin Johnston is one of the best receivers in the entire country, but that's one guy. The other receivers they have are more complementary pieces. That was not the case with Ohio State when you have Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Buka who pose an almost equal threat in the passing game for Ohio State. They have one guy that is that like dude at receiver and a couple other guys that can that can make some plays and can score and can pick up first downs, but they're they're not the game-changing type players themselves. And we just traditionally fare a lot better against those kind of offenses. Think about the dual threat quarterbacks we face this year, right? Think about Bo Nix, Hannon Hooker, Anthony Richardson, Robbie Asher, Jane Daniels. We handled all of those guys, okay? By my calculations, we played seven teams that, I, that had what I would qualify as a dual threat quarterback and we handle those guys all very well what I told you last week is what we don't handle well are dynamic passing offenses TCU is a good passing offense I don't know that I would call them dynamic I don't think that I that I would I put the numbers out there for you last uh last week guys so uh, coming into the Peach Bowl we had played six teams going back the last four years and going back going back to what 2019 that were top 15 in passing offense and against those teams we'd given up 370 yards a game, passing three touchdowns, 
percent completion percentage. And I plugged in the numbers with Ohio State after Saturday, and it base stayed the exact same. They were 23 or 34, 348, four touchdowns. Comes out to 366 a game, three touchdowns through the air, 67.6% completion percentage in the last seven games against opponents that feature top 15 passing offenses. Those are the offenses that give us trouble. Those are things. You have to have an elite quarterback who is an elite passer with elite skill weapons at his disposal, and they can just they have an offense that just slings the ball all over the field. TCU throws the ball well. They have one awesome receiver. Max Duggan is a very good quarterback, but I would not put the TCU passing offense in the same category as LSU 2019, Bama 2020, Florida 2020, Bama 2021, uh, Tennessee this year, Ohio State this year. I would not put them in that same league. So it's much more of an offense that we historically have had a lot of success defending. All right, we got two more quick questions here. Uh, next one is from Liam. Liam asks, what gives you the most concern in this matchup with TCU? And also, what gives you the most confidence in the matchup? Well, most concerning aspect of this game is, I'll go back to what I was just talking about, explosive plays. That's what makes this TCU offense dynamic, right? Is that they have really hit some explosive plays, some game-changing explosive plays. I mean, think about that that long catch and run that... Quentin Johnson had against against Michigan on Saturday when uh, he caught that little screen behind the line, right? Like that was an ex- a game changing explosive play for TCU. That is what concerns me. We traditionally have done a really good job of limiting explosive plays under Kirby Smart. He's made a, a point to do so. He puts a premium on that. This year, however. We have not been as proficient defensively in in limiting explosive plays from opposing offenses. This year, we've already given up 25 plays of 30 or more yards on defense. You can go back to last year, we gave up 19 on the year, and that's with a, a full 15-game season. 15 season. Uh, go back to, I'm not going to say 2020 because that was a, a shortened COVID season, but 2019, we gave up 11 plays of, of 30 or more yards in 2019. In 2018, we gave up 19 plays of 30 or more yards. So we're just giving up big plays. It's not still not routinely. We're still good at limiting them. We're just not as good as we have been in the past couple of years. So that is certainly a concern for me because, again, I don't think that TCU is going to be able to drive the length of the field consistently enough to score enough points to beat us in this game absent explosive plays. So that is absolutely critical, and they've been really good at hitting those explosive plays. So that that's certainly concerning for, for me in this game. And um, what am I most confident about? I think that just the matchup against the TCU offense um, in terms of how they're structured. Yes, again, they're explosive. I know that. But in how they run their offense, this is a team that can hurt you with the pass game, but they really need to be able to run the football in order for their offense to operate the way that it needs to to win a game like this. In the games they struggled the most in this season, those are the games they struggled the most to run the ball. Not coincidentally there. So against Kansas, they yeah, they beat Kansas, but they only beat them by a touchdown, 38-31. They only rushed for 144 yards in that game, only 4.6 yards per carry. Against Texas, they won that game only by a touchdown, 17-10. They only rushed for 159 yards and 3.6 yards per rush in that game. Against Baylor, they won by one point, 29-28. They only rushed for 115 yards and only 4.3 yards per carry in that game. So this is an offense that, yes, they can throw the ball. I'm not saying they can't throw the ball, but for their passing game to be as effective as it needs to be to beat us, they also need to be able to run the football. They can't, this is not an offense that can just drop back and throw the ball 50, 60 times a game and and beat you without being able to run the football. That's not going to happen in this game. So if we can stop the run, 
then that is going to go a long way towards us winning this football game. And you know what just happens to be our defensive specialty? Yeah, that's right. Stopping the run. So that does give me a lot of confidence heading into this matchup. And our last question, this is more of just a general-based question uh, from Darren. Darren asks, how much has the narrative changed regarding Georgia's offense and the ability to throw the ball and win shootouts? I think the Peach Bowl changed everything. Um, yes and no. I think in the mind of Georgia fans, it it, it has. I think, I think maybe it was already changed before that. Um, but I think even your average Georgia fans like, oh yeah, now our offense can can absolutely score with anybody. I think maybe we opened the eyes of, of some more knowledgeable and open-minded fans out there. But you also know that there are people who have agendas and no matter what they see, no matter what evidence um, is put out there to dispute their opinions and their agendas, they're just not going to buy it. It's confirmation bias. It's just, it's part of, of, of college ball fandom, right? But I, all I know is I am I, over the past couple of days since this game, I've still read a lot of folks out there calling Stetson Bennett a game manager saying that he's just along for the ride. And it's just cause he, he's just a function of having all these players around him. I, I don't know. Like there's just some people out there that are just stuck in this mindset that Stetson Bennett is not actually good, that our offense is not among the elites in the country. I mean, what the general idea I still get from a lot of people out there, again, this is a lot of this is taken from social media, and like you have to take that with a massive grain of salt because it is the Carnival Funhouse of social media. It just is what it is. But there are people out there that like whenever we put up those kind of performances that we just saw in the Peach Bowl against Ohio State, for a lot of the people, it's not about how good we are. They'll, they'll never give us credit for that. Like, and they'll never say, well, Georgia's offense is actually elite. Oh, I was wrong. They can't do it. They're incapable of it. It's more for them. They're just going to point out and say, well, it's just, you know, Ohio State's defense is just bad. Like, it wasn't Georgia's offense. I mean, like, it's, Ohio State's just not good on defense. So, again, yes, like, your point is very valid. I think among the knowledgeable, reasonable college ball fans out there, they look at what we've been able to do offensively the past couple of years, and now they're kind of coming around saying, oh, you know what? Yeah, Georgia's actually got a really good offense. It's not just this kind of old school ground pound that maybe it once was but college football is full of a bunch of maniacs right like college football fan bases are like people are crazy like you know I mean and there's a lot of crazy people in Georgia fan base too and I'm probably one of them and there's a lot of people out there that just uh, have agendas have mindsets and no matter what evidence is out there you'll never convince them otherwise but all right, guys, that's all I got for you today. I got through as many questions as I possibly could. I got to run here. I got some family stuff I got to take care of. I wish I had a little bit more time. I just don't. I just don't today. Um, but I will be back. This is not the last episode this week. I will have the official national championship preview episode that I will have for you guys probably Thursday night. I want to do as much uh, film watching as I can, which I don't really need to do that much of because... If you've been listening to this show all season, you know that I've watched TCU closely all year long, not really preparing for this game. I didn't know they were going to make the national championship game, but um, I was very high on TCU coming this season, and that led me to put some significant wagers on them in the preseason, and that's why I've been watching them. Like I've watched basically every single game they played all year long, so I am very, very well acquainted with this TCU team. So I think that I'm going to have, I mean, a lot of other people do a fantastic job out there in the Georgia media, but I think I am uniquely situated to preview this matchup between Georgia and TCU with how much and how closely I have watched this TCU football team play all season long. So I have all that for you guys later on this week. But thank you for being here. Love you guys. Appreciate you. I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>